Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all. This is another edition of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. The Andrew Lawton Show on Wednesday, October 19th, just after 4.03 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.33 in Newfoundland and Labrador, 1.03 in British Columbia, and I'll let you fill out the local listings on all of those in-between time zones. The uh, the time zone recitation is a little trick that Mark Stein does on his podcast, and when I guest hosted for him on uh, several occasions, I made sure to like include the time zones, and I actually kind of enjoyed it. It's a lot of fun, but in any event... <laughs> That is, you know, for all of you watching this or listening to this after the fact, or like, what the, that was like five seconds of my life, I'll never get back. A lot like Jim Watson's testimony before the Public Order Emergency Commission. That's what we call a segue, my friends. This is now day five of the Public Order Emergency Commission. I did a bit of an experiment on yesterday's show, and I spent the entire program talking about what had been happening in the first several days, playing some of the key clips and highlights. I'm going to do a little bit of that today, but I'm also going to take a lot of the bigger picture view. Tom Morazzo, who has been on this show before, he was quoted in my book. He was a Freedom Convoy volunteer, big logistics guy. He'll be on in just about 12 minutes time to talk about the negotiations taking place behind the scenes between convoy organizers and the city of Ottawa. Negotiations that are quite critical to this idea of whether or not the Emergencies Act was justified. We have heard a lot of testimony to this point. In fact, it's just after 4 o'clock right now, and since 9.45 this morning, with a couple of breaks there notwithstanding, former Ottawa Police Services Board Chair Diane Deans has been testifying, talking about all of these calls that she was putting and that the police service was putting to get more resources, more officers, calls that effectively went ignored. And I want to play just a couple of the highlights that have come out from Diane Dean's testimony so far. One of them I found kind of interesting here, and I want to pull up the clip. Uh, it's actually two clips because she was, it seemed like surprised that the police service didn't want to give her, a city councillor who's responsible for basically the ways and means of policing, keeping the lights on at Ottawa Police Headquarters, surprised they didn't want to give her like the detailed breakdown of what their tactical plans were to go after convoy protesters. This was an exchange from just about an hour and a half ago. Um, in your witness statement, you say that when you requested to see the plan, you would receive wiggle words. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, I, I think just what I've been describing here this morning, that we'd see parts of a plan, we'd hear little bits about, um, you know, there's going to be some form of an operation, but, um, you know, I recall at one point she slowly telling me that he couldn't share the details because, you know, it obviously the element of surprise is important in these operations. And we heard a lot of evidence this morning about the plan. So... You testified that there is always some tension between the police and the police services board about the sharing of operational planning details, right? Right. Um, and we spoke before the break about the sensitivity of intelligence information. And I suggest to you that there are very similar sensitivities involved in sharing operational information. Yep. 
The information of police operations is considered highly confidential for safety reasons. Right. Uh, including the, the, the safety of officers. And as chief of police, the safety of officers would be of the utmost importance, right? Of course. And like in the case of intelligence reports, it was not the practice of the board to demand operational planning information prior to the convoy, right? Um. I don't think we demanded operational planning information. I think we, you know, inquired about operational issues in accordance with what we understood uh, that limit to be under the act. Fair. So prior to the convoy, you wanted some high level operational information, but you weren't asking for tactical plans, for example. No. You agree with me on that? I do. Okay. So it was a bit of an odd exchange in some regards because we, we had on one hand the police services board saying she wanted more information. She seemed a little bit perturbed. She wasn't getting that, but also an admission that no, the police services board who are bureaucrats and counselors would never have access to just that minutiae of where the police are going to position and all of this other stuff. So I, I think that there's a bit of a weird dynamic taking place now. This is the woman who, when the convoy was underway, uh, accused them of being terrorists. She said that, I can't remember if it was during a meeting or in an interview, but called the convoy protesters terrorists. Yet, oddly, Diane Dean was actually like treated as an asset by convoy leaders and convoy organizers. They were uh, being very nice to her. Brendan Miller, who's been the, the lead lawyer representing the Freedom Convoy, uh, was thanking her for her service on the police services board, was complimenting her. They were all laughs. And it seemed like there is a little bit of a sense of trying to pick the enemy of your enemy. And I think that there's a lot of issues uh, that Diane Deans had with Jim Watson. They played, and I'm not going to make you suffer through it, but they played this 10-minute-long, surreptitiously recorded conversation. Diane Deans recorded it. It's a Teams meeting between her and Jim Watson, and it's about her decision to appoint a, an interim chief to replace Steve Bell when there was this point at which Ottawa had like three police chiefs in the matter of 24 hours, and Jim Watson was expressing his uh, dislike of that decision. And the police service lawyer was really going after Diane Deans for recording this. And it was kind of an odd dynamic uh, about, you know, like nothing to do with the Emergencies Act, nothing to do with horses trampling over an Indigenous woman, nothing to do with the suspension of civil liberties, nothing to do with anything except perhaps a little bit of palace intrigue at Ottawa City Hall. Not that intrigue and Ottawa municipal politics have ever been used in the same sentence before. I want to play another clip for you here, and this is a, a bit of an interesting one that came about today in which Diane Deans accused Jim Watson of using the convoy to score political points. And I should say, this is perhaps why the convoy lawyer might have thought that she was a, a better ally as far as legal strategy is concerned compared to Jim Watson. Let's roll that. There was never an intention to hire anyone to be the ongoing chief of police in Ottawa without a process. And um, I was frustrated that it was characterized, I mean, 
the mayor's office got ahead of that story in the media by leaking it, which it was confidential information, it was leaked. Um, and they got ahead of that story and characterized it as something quite different than it was intended to be. You felt they're playing a bit of politics with you in the midst of this crisis in the city? Yeah, I guess, I guess to a certain extent, that old maxim about never wasting a good crisis, it also presents an opportunity to settle some old scores. And I guess that's the way I, I viewed that. Yeah, that's how you felt. Yeah. Accusing Mayor Jim Watson of using the convoy for political gain to force her out of her role as police services board chair and so on. But I want to get outside of the municipal politics here for a moment because one of the big revelations that came wasn't even through uh, testimony necessarily, but through documents. So anyone can do this. You can head to the Public Order Emergency Commission website right now and you can find the documents that have been uploaded as exhibits. And, And there's a bunch of them. There's video. There's email records, handwritten notes, text messages. I haven't gone through all of them yet or even close to all of them. But in these documents, there are some very revealing details. And one of them is not even groundbreaking because anyone with half a brain knew this. Any Canadian knew this. Any convoy member or supporter knew this. Everyone but Justin Trudeau and CBC knew this. But it bears repeating because now it's in the official evidence for the Public Order Emergency Commission. CSIS confirmed that there was no foreign funding behind the convoy, that foreign actors were not behind the convoy, that this was an organic grassroots movement and more importantly, a domestic grassroots movement. Now, this comes from meetings of a minutes of a meeting held on February 6th. So the convoy is well underway here. And the CSIS director, David Vigneault, says there are no foreign actors identified at this point supporting or financing this convoy. Now, obviously, a few days after that, there would be the leak of donors to give, send, go. And people would find that, yes, there were some donors from there that were from the United States or from the United Kingdom or from, I don't know, Swaziland or something. Uh, I think, no, they changed the name. It's now Eswatini. Uh, there's a little bit of African geography trivia for you. Uh, but I, I don't, don't know if there were any Eswatini donors to the Freedom Convoy. But nevertheless, people from around the world that resonated with this did donate. But by and large, foreign funding was a minority. And also, it was downstream. It was downstream of the organic momentum and organic support that the convoy had. And that part is so critical here because there's a difference between some guy sitting in the Kremlin uh, putting this huge chunk of change towards this protest movement and an organic movement that people around the world say, you know what, I like the cut of those truckers' jibs. I don't, is jib plural or is jib singular? I, think, I like the cut of their collective jib, we'll say. And donating a bit of money because they support it. But CSIS acknowledged And the government knew this was not a foreign-funded operation. This was a grassroots movement. And that's so key because if you go back to those criteria to invoke the Emergencies Act that we were talking about at a fairly granular level yesterday, we're not talking about espionage. We're talking about sabotage. We're not talking about foreign interference. We're not talking about threats to Canada's national security. So it's not even groundbreaking. It's not even this huge, giant leap to say, yes, there was no foreign funding, because everyone knew that except for the liberals. But I think it's important that we acknowledge this is now in the record. 
And there's going to be a lot of narrative busting that takes place over the next six weeks as we hear live testimony in real time from so many people that are connected to this at various levels. And, and even people that certainly aren't on the convoy side have been giving evidence and giving testimony that is fairly supportive of the convoy narrative, which is that this was a peaceful, perhaps disruptive, yes, but a peaceful protest. And remember, the federal government has to be able to prove that there were no other means available to them under law to deal with this problem. If, by the way, if a national emergency even existed, which I highly doubt it did, but they need to prove that there were no other lawful means available to them. And I go back to what we heard a lot of this week about the negotiations between the city of Ottawa and convoy organizers. And there's a whole chapter in my book dedicated to this. So if you want to go into that level of detail, I would encourage you to. But I wanted to bring into the discussion Tom Morazzo, who we had on the show uh, shortly after the convoy was disbanded. He was instrumental in those very discussions between convoy leaders and police. And he joins me now. Now, first off, you're in Ottawa right now. Is this your, your first time back in, uh, in some time? No, I was actually here when James Top arrived on the uh, the the 30th of June, and also uh, approximately two weeks before that, when James and I and Dr. Paul Alexander had the meetings with the federal members of uh, Parliament, which, by the way, were all Conservative members of Parliament. So yeah, this oh is yes, now, I, I, I did. Uh, I did remember that. So. So, so you've been back since the, the big events of January and February here. How's it been these first few days listening to all this testimony and uh, reliving, admittedly, some of the more boring aspects of it, but reliving some of this? You know, I, I have to say it has been uh, incredibly challenging to sit there in the audience and listen to people talk about you and the the convoy in in everybody that participated in the convoy in january and february and literally regurgitate the mainstream media talking points that we heard nine months ago in fact not only did they regurgitate just the mainstream media talking points but they they even amplify it they even further you know exaggerate the the stories from the mainstream media that we heard so when you're sitting there in the audience and and you're listening to them actually say it in real time it's a little bit disheartening because you know i i think they've said it so many times in their in their minds that they actually believe the the lies themselves uh i don't think they can they can distinguish between the lies and in the truth anymore there have been a lot of details, especially today, that I, I really don't think are all that relevant to this use of the Emergencies Act. I mean, if you're an Ottawa City Hall watcher, it may be fascinating to hear about, you know, the, the infighting between Diane Deans and Jim Watson. But it really doesn't apply to this uh, overarching question of, was Justin Trudeau right to suspend civil liberties? Was this a national emergency? And, and all of these other things. But we are going to get into some of that more critical testimony. I know you are, are on the preliminary list of witnesses so you'll have your opportunity to testify later on but but what is it that you feel you really want to learn from this because you had your own vantage point in the midst of this and I think obviously all of the people connected to the convoy want an acknowledgement that the emergencies act was wrong but but as far as things you'd like to learn what what is the information you want to take out of this well, that's a great question because I, I know pre me personally, what I would like to learn was the the decisions, 
the the steps that the every level of government that was involved in this and we're talking the local government for the city of ottawa the provincial government and the federal government i'm very interested to hear even myself what were the the steps that you took to put decisions that you made you know what were the processes that you had in place to deal with this because we heard testimony um, at the end of, I think on the second day with Councillor Fleury, I believe, where he had said, you know, in his 12 years as a councillor, on average, the city of Ottawa deals with 99 protests per year. And so if I look at that, he's got experience as a, as a ward councillor with 1,200 protests in his time in council. Two so a week. he's quite an experienced yeah, yeah, he's a, he's a very experienced politician when it comes to, you know, that I mean, to break it down, it's a third of your year almost where you're dealing with protests in your ward. Mm -hmm. So my my question becomes, well, what things in your 12 years have you done to put into place to assist law enforcement into, uh, you know, putting yourselves in a position where should there be, you know, um, a protest to this magnitude? how can you help local law enforcement what steps did you do like i i mean one of the biggest things that i'm most baffled about is i've yet i have yet we're on day five of hearing testimony i have yet to hear one single member of any level of government that has testified actually make even the most slightest remote suggestion that anybody come and actually meet with us and talk to us what they did, what they have been doing is they've immediately moved to give themselves extraordinary powers so that they could use physical force to remove this convoy. And, and it's strange to me because they both, on one hand, they'll say, hey, we believe in free speech. We believe in the charter. We believe in the, the right to peacefully assemble under Section 2 of the charter. But their immediate default setting was to go towards giving themselves extraordinary powers so that they could physically remove the convoy from the city of Ottawa. There was never, I have yet yeah. to hear any dialogue uh, or, or discussion of having dialogue with us. Nothing. Well, on that note, one exhibit that did come up yesterday when uh, Mayor Jim Watson was testifying was a, a or it might have been two days ago with someone else. I, I get them all mixed up, but uh, it was a text exchange with someone from the federal government where uh, it was the Ottawa chief of staff uh, to the mayor, Serge Arpin, I believe, or the city manager, Steve Kanellakis, who had said to the federal government, like, you know, you guys are just coming out and denigrating them and you expect us to meet with them. So even when the city was engaging with you, there was this frustration from them that the federal government was just trying to vilify and demonize. Uh, continuously and that was the federal government's only real strategy here yeah and, and you saw even in the testimony I mean we haven't really heard from the Ontario government um, and I don't even believe Doug Ford is on the list and nor does he have any desire to participate in this in, in any meaningful way um, even though he is the one who got his attorney general to use ex parte meaning yes to get uh, the 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 funds that we we fundraised, you know, two occasions, $10 million each time. Um, he went after that knowing that we had legal counsel on the ground. He knew who they were, but yet he got into a courtroom with his attorney general and froze that money as proceeds of a crime without any legal representation from us. So that's the premier of this province that's that's doing that, right? 
You've got um, Justin Trudeau, who was making the circuit on media, calling us misogynist. And I saw in the, the media, he's still using that word, um, you know, to, to target anybody that he, dis he, at least he's using it on Pierre Polyev instead of us for a change. But, you know, we're seeing all this infighting. And, and to be perfectly honest, I, I've been sitting in the crowd listening to all this testimony for, for five days now. Um, and what I hear is gross incompetence and uh power grabs it is a bunch of children that can't get along with each other in the sandbox and i i'm not hearing anything but just a, really a lot of uh, unprofessionalism uh and i think that if the public at large tuned in to listen to what was actually being said they would be beyond disgusted in in the behavior of the the government at even the city of ottawa level um, it is, it is just, uh, it's a sight to see and to listen to day after day, how they, they just tear each other apart. So I, I mean, I, it's, I'm not a sophisticated lawyer. I don't have the experience to see it the way the lawyers do it, but as a general public, um, I see this and I think, how do you guys even keep the lights on in this city? It's amazing. Yes. And, and, and I, I also go back to a point that I, I may have actually made when you and I were speaking on this program last about how this convoy came together in the matter of a couple of weeks. And it's a wonder how the city of Ottawa even manages to put Canada Day together with a whole year, given the level of, of dysfunction we, we have here. But I, I want to go to those crucial negotiations, because I, I think these things are, are really one of the, the silver bullets of the case against the Emergencies Act, because they were bearing fruit. Trucks were being relocated onto Wellington Street. The impact on uh, residential neighborhoods was being diminished by the day. The federal government knew about that. And this we did get pretty clearly from testimony this week that it wasn't just that briefing before cabinet, but uh, the chief of staff to uh, Minister Marco Mendicino was actively engaged, acknowledged that Minister Marco Mendicino knew about these negotiations and knew about this process. I know you were were integral to those. Uh, in your view, would this have, if, if you had been given that full three days without the Emergencies Act to move these trucks, would the protest look very different from how it did a few days prior? Absolutely, it would have. We would have relocated the trucks. And I want to, I want to put out a caveat with this too. Every truck driver that was there was an individual owner operator of their own, their own vehicles. So would we have done everything in our power to try and convince the individual owner operators to relocate up onto Wellington, which we were all working towards that objective. And, you know, I think that that would have very, very likely been the case had the the government not meddled not interfered and, and um you know really really tried hard to angle themselves in a position where they could try to invoke the emergencies act um i think you would have seen a very much uh, different looking outcome i believe we would have got those trucks on there i mean chris barber was there you know trying to relocate vehicles i know myself and eva chipiuk were actually in a truck talking to truckers, trying to lay out a case for why this was good for us. And we were getting buy-in and, you know, you would see the, um, you know, the, the, I, I, there was a time that I felt bad once for my, my Ottawa police uh, liaison officer, uh, because we kind of, it, it's to use the football analogy, we kind of got to the five yard line. And then all of a sudden the chaos that was happening behind the scenes with the, 
uh, police department themselves. Um, they pulled the, the rug right under this guy's uh, feet mm-hmm. and the entire deal broke down. And, you know, and it was, we, we had a clear objective for what we wanted. And you know what that objective was? Always, always, first and foremost was to end the federal mandates. But the other thing was always to be safe and responsible for the residents of Ottawa and for the truckers and for the police and all emergency services vehicles. That was a a stated clear objective amongst all of us to be safe and responsible. And yet at every turn, it would seem that the the so-called local government um, and federal government would, would have their own agendas and they would interrupt that. And then they would go on to the media and blame us for it. One thing that I, I have to ask, because there was a fair bit of testimony about the uh, group of truckers that were at Rideau and Sussex, and, and the way that this was described by some of the people connected to the city of Ottawa who have testified is that they were a Quebec group and they were a, a lot more stubborn. They were, uh, I think there was, someone even made an implication that there was some organized crime connection, but they didn't really extrapolate on that. But but basically that this group really wasn't interested in the deal. And I was wondering if you could give a little bit of context on that and and was that an accurate characterization of of this group and for people that aren't familiar with ottawa this is basically that intersection where the shadow laurier and the the rideau center are so so that is a very true statement and i mean the government did acknowledge that that there was some some difficulties uh with that particular group and you know this is this goes back to what i was saying earlier that each individual owner operator was free to always make their own decisions right they were there voluntarily there was no chain of command that was, you know, lawfully giving orders to all the truck drivers. What we had was a an established intersection of um, of truckers from all various backgrounds. It wasn't just truckers from Quebec. There was Polish uh, truck drivers that were there, Polish Canadians that were there, and I don't believe they were from from the province of Quebec. So we had a mix of different groups that were actually on that corner. I know because I personally talked to them. And so what we did, like we did with every other um, different sort of group, because we, we tried to structure it in a way to just, just for ease of, of communication to make uh, truck captains to sort of just for passing information, right? We, we wanted to be a little bit organized. The government's kind of been using that as a criticism of the convoy, that not everyone was was there under this one banner and one hierarchy. But anyone I've ever interviewed or spoken to, whether it's you or, or some of your colleagues there, that's like the selling point of the convoy because it speaks to that organic grassroots nature of it. And to go back to that ridiculous claim that we've heard from the government and from CBC that this was foreign funded and that foreign actors were behind it. I mean, yes, there were people from Poland and people from India, but they weren't representing any foreign interest. They're there as as truckers. And uh, this idea that this was grassroots, I think it's where the magic of the convoy really came from, because there was no head of the snake, if you will, because everyone was there as an individual because they bought into the message of the convoy. Yeah. And you know, what's a really interesting thing is I had heard uh, the story about the foreign funding and everything. And, and somebody that I know that actually was in Canada in, in rich, like is a, a Polish Canadian person, as well as Indian Canadian uh, people had actually traveled back to their, uh, their other countries. And from there were, because of their affiliation of being Canadians as well, and who were in Canada, went back to their, to the other countries and were making donations. And that's how they ended up getting classified as being foreign funded. 
it's like you're kind of that, that's like me taking a trip to florida and watching back here and saying well i'm going to donate from florida and now that's counting as foreign funding no. what, whatever happened to diversity being our strength we're supposed to celebrate that we have all of these different cultures in canada but it's here nor there because i mean the reality is the the ceases you know, acknowledge that, hey, this is not a foreign funded uh, or controlled or run operation by by an outside government. This is a grassroots movement. They've said it themselves. They've proven this. And it's, as far as I'm concerned, a done deal, right? This was, this was yeah. Canadians. Let me just ask you to, to go back to those negotiations for a moment. You, you had, uh, we, we heard this week, Jim Watson really express a little bit of skepticism. And, and even some of the documents that Ottawa has put forward have said they really felt like they had nothing to lose. So it wasn't like they were taking this moral stance that, you know, these are Canadians and we want to sit down and we want to talk to them. When, when you were in the room, what, what was your sense of, of their motivation? Did you feel like they were trying to pull the, the rug out from under you? Did you feel feel like they were just desperate and trying to do something like what would you characterize as their motivations when they did eventually agree to, to talk with you and, and then also through Dean French to talk with the broader Freedom Court board? Well, I want to say this. Um, my impression of listening to the testimony of Jim Watson yesterday, the, the, the only word I could describe for that particular set of testimony was hubris, um, you know, which is is excessive pride. Um, and, and I, I'm sorry, but listening to the, to the mayor characterized the way he did was very, very bizarre to me. Um, I'm not even sure he was, he was in the same city that the rest of us were in, but I, you know, to go to your, your original question, you know, my dealings with, um, the city manager, Steve K, uh, and then later we had subsequent meetings with, um, with Steve K, Kim Ayotte, um, inspector Drummond. Um, and members of the, the truck board, uh, you know, we had very productive meetings. It was a very meaningful dialogue. And, and that was interesting because I don't think that that was, that was conveyed strongly enough. Now, I will say I was, uh, you know, I was quite appreciative of the, uh, the, the forthrightness and the honesty and I think the integrity that came from Steve K and, um, uh, uh, Mr. Ayotte, when he was speaking as well, the chief of staff to the mayor, uh, it was it was absolutely refreshing to hear their testimony. And and I mean to say that they were against the convoy, yes, that's true. But they were against the convoy, but they were always very respectful, and they clearly stated why uh, they were taking the actions that they were taking. So they weren't they weren't against us because they didn't like us. But when you look at some of the other testimony, they were against us because they didn't like us. Right. And so there's a big difference between doing something because it's the right thing to do versus I'm going to do this because I just don't like you. And that to me was very, very clear. Yeah, And we go back to the federal government's role in this. There no one lives on Wellington Street. There are no businesses on Wellington Street. It, it's government, government, government. And if this operation had been uh, had, had been seen through to completion, this would have been the federal government's problem entirely. And I, I think it was actually quite brilliant on the city of Ottawa's perspective to say, listen, we can't make the convoy go away. Our issue is that we want Ottawa residents and businesses to have as, as minimal disruption as possible. And I don't think the federal government wanted to to then have this squarely on its lap yeah and, and you know we prepared a uh, a live stream uh statement and we said we specifically said many times 
uh, I know myself, I, I said it once. I know the other members had all said it on various forms of, uh, of, of live streaming that our intention was not to put pressure or disrupt the city of Ottawa. Our, our, our grievance was with the federal government and that we wanted to work with the city. We knew, we identified, and if you listen to Diane Dean's testimony today, after that police services board meeting that she had with Peter Slowly, um, we listened to that testimony, or sorry, we listened to the uh, recording of that meeting, and we knew immediately that the situation had just fundamentally changed for, for us, and we took immediate steps to recreate a strategy to take the pressure off of the residents, thereby taking the pressure off of the chief of police, thereby taking pressure off of the entire city of Ottawa, the entire situation. We were trying to de-escalate the tension. That was a deliberate objective that we had based on that police services board meeting where we saw all this rhetoric uh, and, and quite frankly, unhinged um, discussions coming out of Diane Dean. It was just incredible to watch. And we knew we had to make immediate steps to get Peter slowly help. We were actually actively trying to help Peter slowly. Which is, which is incredible um, when you think that the amount of disrespect we were seeing, we were actually trying to help them. And, you know, when you're listening to the testimony, you're not seeing that come out, right? Because their response is, hey, from day one, we just wanted to break the backs of these people, break their will to continue to protest. And, you know, they say on one hand, hey, we, we believe in free speech and protesting or, or peacefully assembling, but we're going to do everything in, in our power to go after you and to break your will to stay in our city, you know? So it's, it's really yeah. a lot of double speak. I, I am very glad actually that uh, people like you and, and Tamara Legion, Chris Barber are so far down in the witness list because you actually get the benefit of hearing this and you can be res uh, responding to this and, and questioned on things that have come up earlier. Whereas uh, if you were earlier on and you wouldn't necessarily know where Jim Watson was going to go or where uh, Kelly Ayotte uh, were, was going to go and, and so on. So I'm actually quite glad that you are going to be a little bit later in the, the running order, as you will, and, and you can deal with this uh, on the record under oath. Uh, Tom Morazzo, uh, we'll check in with you, I'm sure, later on in this uh, six, seven weeks, but thank you so much for joining me today. Good to talk to you, as always. Yeah. Thank you, too, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you. That is Tom Morazzo. Army Tom, as he's called by Keith Wilson, who was just on the show last week, uh, takes a, a very, very significant logistical mind uh, to just go and, you know, keep emergency lanes open and talk about truck repositioning. And he did that. And I think it was very much an endorsement of him that he was invited to have that meeting at the city of Ottawa initially. And then, of course, the, the negotiations got more complex as you had uh, Dean French start brokering it. Uh, interestingly enough, Dean French is not on the witness list. And I can't remember if I mentioned it yesterday. He's someone that I really think should be on there. Other people as well that would have very unique perspectives that aren't on the witness list, like the police liaisons that were on the ground talking to convoy organizers and protesters throughout the week, they aren't on the list. And I know that there is a, a work in progress, uh, possibly, that more witnesses could be added. But I really do think this is something we, we need to see more of. People that have not just uh, official responses and official lines, but people 
that were actually there, that were actually on the ground that can speak to what was happening. So uh, we'll keep you uh, keep you in the loop on this as the days and weeks progress. I, I just want to, before we wrap things up here, tell you that we are so close to our 100,000 subscriber goal on YouTube. So if you are a YouTube user uh, and perhaps you're watching this on YouTube right now, Click that subscribe button. I think it's red. It's like just below the video and you don't even need to go there very far and just click subscribe and then you're uh, sorted out. And if you're watching on Facebook, once we finish, go over to YouTube and subscribe. And if you don't have an account, get an account and then subscribe. But I think you automatically have one if you are a, a Gmail user. So no excuse for not su subscribing. And if we get to 100,000, every single one of you gets a puppy. Well, I'll show a picture of a puppy on the show after we get to 100,000, but that's it. Or a cat. We don't discriminate. We can do uh, one of each for all of you. Uh, thanks to Tom Morazzo and all of you folks for tuning in to the program today. Uh, we will be back next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show and a brand new edition of Fake News Friday on, as the name suggests, Friday. Have a good weekend, everyone. Thank you. God bless and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.